On this episode of the podcast that celebrates the backstory of British broadcasting, the first radio drama, so first prologue. Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. We've reached late April 1923, which surely means Shakespeare's birthday. Well, he's not around to celebrate it, but the half-year-old BBC do their bit. But what drama has been on the air before that? Well, not a lot, really. February the 16th, 1923, had the first Shakespeare scenes broadcast, a bit of Julius Caesar and Othello. See episode 55 for more on that. Before that, outside broadcasts of operas in January 1923, but before all of that, Christmas Eve 22, saw the first drama written for radio. We mentioned this briefly on episode 20, The Truth About Father Christmas by Phyllis Twig. But we didn't talk about it nearly enough, because, well, no one does. But if Phyllis Twig is Britain's first radio dramatist, shouldn't we know a bit more about her? This time, we redress the balance, rewrite the history book, set the record straight and shout from the rooftops about Phyllis Twig and her pen name that unlocks a whole other history of broadcasting's premier pensmith. Over the past year or so, I have fallen down the rabbit hole and I have landed on not just a twig, but the tale of Phyllis Twig. And in that rabbit hole, I found Professor Tim Crook. He's been looking into her as well. So we joined forces. He has a book. I have a podcast. And we are both evangelistic about amplifying the story of the first radio dramatist. Hear from Tim this episode and from Phyllis Twig's grandson, Peter Grimaldi. And Dr. Andrea Smith tells us about those scenes from Shakespeare for the Bard's birthday broadcast. When shall these three guests meet again? Is this a podcast I hear before me? Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. It's a tale of drama, but also of mass telepathy, televised cookery, and spin-off lampshades. The truth about Phyllis Twig on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling... This is London Calling. Be not afeard, the isle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears and sometimes voices. Well, a fair summary there of early radio. After the drama of the last couple of episodes, when we brought to life the parliamentary debates about the BBC in April 1923, we got drama of a different sort this episode. If you've heard us before, you will know that I try and keep things chronological on this backstory of the Beeb, although we are not afeard to jump forward and back now and then if there's a good story to tell. And I think we've got a cracking tale for you this time. I've been looking forward to this episode for a little while, partly because it may be the most significant episode that we've done in terms of actually finding something new about something old and presenting it to today's BBC to hopefully make a difference in how we view those who did all of this first. It's yet another tale of a forgotten female at the heart of radio's origin story. She is the only person that I have found to have achieved a first in both radio and TV, and I will tell you what her TV first was in about 20 minutes' time. First, though, let's look at what she achieved on radio for the first time. Now, while hers was the first original drama, it wasn't the first acted drama on the radio, although it's pretty close. 17th of October 1922, Peter Eckersley and his 2MT crew gave us a scene from Cyrano de Bergerac, the first moment of radio drama in Britain. Oh, yes, Serrano. Rehearsed, presented, performed, modulated, and I think almost knocked off the air due to (laughs) overmodulation by one P.P. Eckersley. Yeah, yeah. 
I, well, I think was the rustling leaves. <laughs> it's about as far as I was trusted. A month later, the BBC began broadcasting, and a month after that, after weeks of music news and talks, we get to Christmas Eve 22, the first drama written for this new medium. Here is what we said about Phyllis Twig on episode 20, which was all about the first BBC Christmas. It's Christmas Eve. Arthur Burroughs narrates this radio first, the first broadcast drama written for radio. It's written by Phyllis Twig, and it features sound effects. In fact, probably the first sound effects of formal radio, apart from Peter Eckersley bashing pots and pans in Essex. It was the tale of Father Christmas carrying seven tonnes of toys in a plane. Yes, another new innovation. A review in popular wireless magazine said, The true story of Father Christmas was probably the most thrilling thing any kiddie has ever listened to. After a few carols from the Chantry singers... at So last year I thought, hmm, there must be more we can find than that. And yet the internet had next to nothing on her. Why is there so little about Phyllis Twig online, in books and official accounts, if she really was the first to specially write a wireless play? We will delve too then into reasons why she may not have had the limelight that others had instead. I'm excited to bring you this tale. You see many sleepless nights reading the old issues of the wireless world and several library visits later, I found a whole other side to her. It turns out I wasn't the only one looking for the truth about Phyllis M. Twig. Delighted to welcome to the podcast now uh, Emeritus Professor in the Department of Media, Communications and Cultural Studies at Goldsmiths University of London and author of Writing Audio Drama, a brand new book and many others as well, Professor Tim Crook. Thank you for joining us, Tim. My uh, pleasure. I've wanted to get you on the podcast for ages because I've seen your many articles and especially this episode, we're looking at very early radio drama. But give us a brief intro. We'll go from there. Uh, Phyllis Twig was hidden in plain sight because the first director of programmes at the first BBC London station to LO, Arthur Burroughs, explained that she was the first and he played Father Christmas in her play on Christmas Eve in 1922. From the story of broadcasting by Arthur Burroughs. It was for the amusement of these dear little folk that the first specially written wireless play, The Truth About Father Christmas, was broadcast with effects in this country. The authoress was Mrs Phyllis M. Twig of Ventnor, whose interesting series of stories, The Tales of a Fairy Dustman, was also broadcast at a later date. So why is Twig ignored? She's Twignored. Phyllis Twig's play deserves a lot more recognition I really should credit Dr. Christina Pepler, otherwise known as Tina Pepler, brilliant radio playwright, who researched and wrote one of the most significant PhDs in radio drama at Bristol University in 1988. And she made a point throughout her PhD, the first original playwright for radio was Mrs. Phyllis Twig. She had to make the point four or five times in her thesis. But I think the reason why Mrs. Phyllis Twig became lost, was not canonised, was because her script did not survive. Men wrote the history of the BBC generally throughout the 20th century. 13 months later, January 1924's A Comedy of Danger by Richard Hughes is often wrongly named the first radio drama. In fact, as recently as February this year, 2023, Radio 4 broadcast a special new version inspired by Richard Hughes' Danger with this official BBC listing 
written just five months ago. The first specially written original radio drama for this then new medium was written by playwright and poet Richard Hughes under the title A Comedy of Danger. Yep, and a recent Spectator article also referred to this as the world's first radio play. But Richard Hughes' play was on a year and a bit after Twig's Father Christmas play. So what's that all about? Here's Professor Tim Crook. Full credit does need to be given to Richard Hughes because he did write an utterly brilliant play and it was directed by a brilliant director, Nigel Playfair. This went out, just the comedy of danger. It was nothing but a comedy. There'll be articles in all the newspapers. Oh, I wish I could read them. You can't have your funeral and watch it, young lady. (laughs) Richard Hughes is a very close friend of Lance Seavey King, a major figure in the BBC. So inevitably... It was celebrated. It was actually the first ever original radio play produced in Japan. It was exported around the world and celebrated uh, because of its intrinsic qualities, the nightmare claustrophobia being trapped in a coal mine in the dark. So with that, the very significant contribution of key writers, women writers, to radio drama and also production, there, there were thrown into the shadows in- includes of course Kathleen Nesbitt who was really the, you know the producer and the adapter of the BBC Shakespeare's as Dr Andrea Smith has so brilliantly researched and, and revealed in her recent thesis and, and published research in a series on BBC Radio 3. And we'll hear from Dr Andrea Smith later on those Shakespeare scenes on the air in April 1923. Oh yes we bring you all the best academics here. So Mrs. Phyllis Twig, she was the first, and she has a magnificent story, which you independently uh, discovered. So I, I give credit to you and respect to you, because whatever anybody does to recognise any of these women is very, very important to cultural history and also to redress what is patriarchal, uh, sexist discrimination. You know, when I started this Radio History Project... I had no idea that it would turn me into quite such a feminist historian. We have talked on the podcast previously about the long-ignored tale of Gertrude Donisthorpe, technically Britain's first DJ from 1917. I was the first woman to speak over the radio, I think. First broadcaster. All the stations heard me all around within the mile radius. We've shouted about Hilda Matheson, the first director of talks. The first female employee of the BBC was Isabel Shields, Reith's secretary. We've talked a lot about her. Uh, and how about, here's a new one, a first BBC children's presenter, Louisa Benny. I've uh, only just been looking into her now, actually. We've not told her tale yet, but I think we, we may do that in a future episode. First singer on the BBC, Florence Winkless. First professional broadcast singer before the BBC, Winifred Sayer. They said, would you come? They want a girl's voice. And so I said, yes, if you like. First comedian with an act written for radio. Looks like being Helena Millay. A comedy fragment from life. A cockney sketch. I know that Dr Andrea Smith, who we'll hear from later, would want the name Kathleen Nesbitt shouted from the rooftops as well. The brains behind the first full-length Shakespeare plays on the air in 1923. Well, I suppose I'm so used to working that when I'm not working, I just don't quite know what to do with myself. A lot of wonderful wireless women there doing those things for the first time. But Google almost all of those names. You'll find almost nothing online about any of them. Maybe another reason why uh, they were not given the recognition they deserve is because they were women, and to use a patronising, patronymic term, they were little women writing for little people, children. And so they were little plays. Uh, When the opposite is true. Yes. 
because uh, the truth about Christmas by Phyllis, it rocked and rolled the country. Even the Radio Times by 1924 was recognising that they were still getting stories about children trying to climb into radio speakers because they wanted to get hold of Father Christmas's presents. That after <laughs> Burroughs, he had about 7,500 of them. <laughs> so how did Phyllis get that first radio writing job? Well, a year before, 1921, she was already writing for audio, pre-radio. About a year before her father Christmas tale was broadcast, Mrs Twig wrote the tales of the fairy dustman, not for the radio, but for print. And they weren't just stories, though. They were put to music, sheet music that Tim Crook has found online and purchased. This was Phyllis's book, Tales of the Fairy Dustman, which is a collection of six stories with the music. Mm. Um, The dustman's arrival, the little nut tree, courage, faith, uh, the bunny's lullaby and, and birth. Yeah. Uh, as you know, um, these stories were produced in three records by HMV, the London Gramophone uh, Company. So, you know, prior to the commission, Phyllis was already a successful published author. She was successful in multimedia in the, uh, the phonograph industry. And her creation, uh, The Fairy Dustman, had been merchandised as a special lamp shade <laughs> to help children not be afraid of the dark and go to sleep uh, more easily. Spin-off media, straight away, boom, we're going to have the lampshade to go with it. (laughs) These may have predated the actual radio play itself, but yeah, wow. I think it's very significant because the the first original radio play was informed Mm. by the phonograph world and phonograph originality in production, and it's something I spend a lot of time um, researching and writing in audio drama modernism. And when researching her and, and finding the London Gramophone records, uh, I'm hoping that you know three original phonographs may be in a, an archive somewhere in, in Hayes or Brentford. Only one seems to have come my way um, via YouTube mm. performance um, by uh, the Colonel. Yes, they're very, very rare. Don't be impatient, said the Dutchman, suddenly appearing through the window. It was dear old Mother Nature. So this gramophone record was recorded in October 1921, I believe, uh, released in spring of 1922, while in March 22, a fairy dustman tale actually appeared in Merry Moments children's comic, alongside Enid Blyton's stories. What an entrepreneurial writer Phyllis Twig was. The story is narrated by Marjorie Montefiore and the song sung by Walter Glynn. Walter Glynn, that name rings a bell. I had a quick look and it turns out, yes, Walter Glynn was one of the rare voices on London Tuolo in its pre-BBC days. He sang from the first all-British wireless exhibition and convention acronym Fab Week in September 1922. He was again on London Tuolo in early November. So just as the BBC was starting, Walter Glynn, who sang the Tales of the Fairy Dustman written by Phyllis Twig, was there working with musical director Stanton Jeffries and first director of programmes Arthur Burroughs. Just as I presume they were deciding they needed a Christmas story for the kids. Walter Glynn then, perhaps, may have said, oh, I know just the writer. She writes children's stories for gramophone records already. There can't be many who actually write children's stories for an audio medium, so I'm sure that she'll write something for your new broadcasting thingamajig. Perhaps that's how the link was made. She was uh, a wonderful, formidable and extremely um, able woman. As you know, she was married to a general practitioner from New Zealand who had um, served during the the Great War. And her grandson, uh, Peter Grimaldi, um, very, very kindly spent some time 
describing her memories of her. And Peter remembers a, a conversation with his grandfather. And he told me this when I was a medical student at Gondola Keys College, Cambridge. Here's Phyllis Twig's grandson, also a doctor, Peter Grimaldi. And in those days, general practice was quite different from now. And one of the conditions my grandfather had to deal with was that he had to deal with children with diphtheritic tonsillitis. Diphtheria was common in those days, no, no immunization. And um, diphtheria would close up a child's throat and they would become gasping for breath, strang- uh, really obstructed. And he would be called out to try and cope with this. And he took my grandmother with him and he recounts a time when he did a tracheostomy operation on the kitchen table with my grandmother holding the ether mask to keep the child sedated. Well, I can tell you as, an, as a retired ear, nose and throat surgeon that doing a tracheostomy in a child, even under ideal conditions with good light, good suction, good nurses, good instruments, is extremely stressful. And to do it on the kitchen table with poor light, no suction, and a screaming mother, no doubt, at the door would have been incredible. But mm. Granny didn't, you know. Professor Tim Crook and myself separately found out about Phyllis Twig's pen name, which unlocked a whole other side to her. But that wasn't straightforward to find in the first place. Although the name Phyllis Twig is unusual, perhaps, it still proved rather tricky to track. This newspaper article from March 1922 in the New Zealand Evening Post. A very attractive present-day writer who may claim to have some connection with New Zealand is Mrs G.W. Twig, whose husband is a well-known medical man at Vedna in the Isle of Wight. Mrs Twig herself is a Londoner who often writes under the pseudonym Moira Meehan. She loved a pen name. For some reason, she chose that name Moira Meehan, as that article says. And that is the key to the other part of Phyllis Twig's life. But we'll get to that. I don't know anything about how that pen name came about. So it's it's Moira Main, I presume, would be the pronunciation. I don't know even how she pronounced it, but Main or Meehan, I really don't know. Mm. And I'm hoping, well, we should be able to research that and find out how that came about. The rest of that newspaper article from March 1922. But for her latest success, The Tales of the Fairy Dustman, she chose the pen name of Puck the Painter. This book has been extraordinarily well received in London and the provinces, and in addition it's been arranged for production by a gramophone, in which connection the words and music are exquisitely recorded. Further too, there is an acting version, which made many a happy nursery at Christmas time. In reviewing the book, apart from the educational value of the Dustman's work, these charming little fairy stories, we are told they are true, should live forever as a nursery classic, for the Dustman's secretaries have certainly caught the fairy atmosphere. Mrs Twig prefers writing for children, but she is well known by readers of magazines, and she has written some chaste love stories for church family newspapers. To that first radio play, the true story about Father Christmas, because there has been a question mark over whether it counts as a drama, perhaps the reason why it's been ignored for so long. There is no script, and for years we've had no idea what was in the story. There's no cast list, there's no Radio Times at this point. Could Arthur Burroughs have just read it out loud as a monologue? I think it most likely was more than the monologue. Um, It must have lasted half an hour on, on the basis of the evidence of the scheduling, the published scheduling. There had to be more than a single voice. Burroughs later wrote an article for World Radio in December 1933 when he recalled, The play was possibly the first to be written in Europe, especially for broadcasting. The cast included children and a number of effects were introduced. Ah, there we have it, Burroughs, telling us the cast included children. That's pretty much the only thing we have to go on to say that this was a fully cast drama. But still no script, no idea what was in it. So, my interest was piqued, and now we know her pen name as Moira Meehan. 
When I was at the British Library, I searched up that name and just saw what they had on her and noted they did have a couple of children's anthologies. The Norma Saturday Fairy Book from 1924 and the Norma Sunday Story Book from 1925. Both books by three writers, Marjorie Royce, also known as war diarist Constance Miles, Barbara E. Todd, who went on to create the Wurzel Gummidge stories, and Moira Meehan, also known as our hero, Phyllis Twig. British Library is just behind me there. Well, this is an audio excerpt from a Patreon video when I first emerged from the British Library. I opened the Norma Saturday fairy book. No sign of the truth about Father Christmas. My heart sank. I opened the Norma Sunday storybook. There it was, in the contents page, the truth about Father Christmas. No script exists, but we have the short story. More videos like that on Patreon if you'd like to join and support the podcast, patreon.com slash paulcarenza. But I was delighted to have found that story. So therefore we now know what was in the truth about Father Christmas. From the Norma Sunday storybook. Every word of this story is true. And this is a couple of years after that first radio drama, so it looks like the story was adapted from the radio drama. It's just over four pages long. We have a cast of characters. There's a five-year-old girl called Anne. Five years ago, when my little girl Anne was five years old, she received a scarlet envelope. Who receives an invitation to meet Father Christmas on Christmas Eve. Dear Anne, said the letter, will you come to a party on Christmas Eve to meet Father Christmas? Other characters include a horrid and unkind boy who puts Anne off the idea of Father Christmas. Then there's Father Christmas who visits Anne's mother, presumably Phyllis Twig, in the middle of the night as a dream to tell her all about his genuine story through the history of Christmas. Tell the children I was born in an eastern city. Tell them that I played and had fun. Father Christmas, played by Burroughs as we know, then narrates the story of Christmas through the ages, beginning with the birth of Jesus at the Nativity, telling us how the spirit of Father Christmas has grown through the years as we've gained various Christmas customs. Personally, I find this particularly moving, especially as I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Hark, The Biography of Christmas retelling some of those Christmas customs. So to find it here is quite marvellous. She then recounts this story to her daughter, reassuring her that the spirit of Father Christmas is always there. And Father Christmas, so gracious, so loving, so friendly to the lonely, seemed more real to her than he had ever done before. Some of those other details that we read about in the newspapers are not there. The Hall of Hearts, the aeroplane with seven tons of toys. But this is Phyllis Twig adapting her own radio script into this new story. And we know now from the short story, there are characters, there's lines of dialogue. So the fact that there's a difference between the short story and the broadcast play, that implies that Arthur Burroughs was not just reading out Phyllis Twig's short story. I'm thinking now we have that story, we can retrospectively unadapt it from that story back into its original radio drama form. Any radio producers listening, do get in touch. You know how to find us and you know that we are enthusiasts for telling the untold tale, the truth about Phyllis Twig. Moira, and a.k.a. Phyllis, Phyllis a.k.a. Moira, <laughs> She carried on doing fairy dustman stories and really for the radio medium through 1923. And, and Arthur Burroughs recognizes this. And there were many of them and they haven't survived. And uh, they may well be single voiced uh, and it may well have been Phyllis doing it herself. She was quite capable of doing it. But she adapted the character and the, the franchise, as it were, uh, to the modern world. So the fairy dustman uh, went to explain Fleet Street. Right. and the printing of national newspapers. And then, uh, quite appropriately, the fairy dustman becomes merchandised as stories 
in regional newspapers. So she's quite a multimedia phenomenon. And as Moira Meehan, she wrote and read children's stories on London 2.0 in January 1924. She broadcast a Books for the Holidays review in June and August 24 on the BBC's Bournemouth station, like a Richard and Judy's book club of its day. Phyllis Twig broadcast a medical talk in May 1925 because, oh yes, her husband was a doctor. The truth of the matter is I was very young when she died. I was about eight or nine. Okay. And sadly, I have much fewer memories of her than I do of my grandfather, her husband, Dr. Twig. But I do remember some things. And I remember she was pretty wacky. She, I suspect, did not tolerate fools very well. I don't think she and my father got on frightfully well. And later I discovered a little mini archive of writings by her. What was really interesting was um, I discovered a letter in the form of a book which she had written to me before I was even born. I was about six months before being born. And she says, my dear darling unborn, I don't know if you will read this, but I hope you will at age 21. So it was written for me to open this book at my 21st birthday. Oh, wonderful. And I'm reading at age 78, and I've only just discovered. And this is through you and Tim's discovery. I mean, if it hadn't been for that, I would Mm. never have opened these books because it wouldn't have had any interest in it. Right, I see. And there they are, hidden away there, yeah. Um, There they are. And she refers to me, she's given me a nickname before I'm even born. She said, it's very difficult to talk to you when you, I don't even know your sex to begin with. So I'm calling you Smut, S-M-O-U-T. She refers to my little darling Smut. This is me age minus six months. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, it's, it's never too late for a nickname, so it could catch on. This letter or book to me, in it, she says, she says, I do hope you do not inherit the snobby traits of the Grimaldis and Dykes. That's on my other side of the oh. uh, other side. And she said, and indeed, my own Mackenzie. So she was very anti-snob. And not afraid to pinpoint exactly where in the family that was. <laughs> but, but equally well was honest enough to say that her own father was a bit of a snob. She was certainly very into ghost stories. And she was certainly into the paranormal. She believed passionately in things like psychic tra- thought transference. And in this very tiny archive I've discovered, it's full of jottings of instances of uh, water divining and faith healing Ah. and personal experiences of the paranormal. So she believed in it passionately. Ah, so now to the spiritual side of Phyllis Twig slash Moira Meehan. She brought this spiritual side to the airwaves in a programme that was certainly not for children. It's quarter past ten at night. It's a brief tangent, but I think a fun one. In November 1925, the ever-innovative British Broadcasting Company decided to have mass telepathy, an experiment in thought reading in which every listener will be invited to assist. Now, for some reason, there's a version of this event in the listings from a fortnight earlier, which coincides roughly with Halloween. But I can't find anything of whether that happened or worked or who was involved. But uh, on the 12th of November 1925, Phyllis Twig was certainly involved when they tried it then. I've got a photo to prove it. You can see her there. I'll put the link in the show notes. And in this picture, you will see 10 ladies and gents all in their finery in a grand room at the Savoy Hotel. That's next door to the BBC base at Savoy Hill. These are people of note from broadcasting or society. We have star of pantos in the 1900s, Miss Zena Dare. 
We've got Lady Tree, a Shakespearean actress. Dorothy Warren, who had uh, often read poetry on London 2LO. Got Commander Kenworthy. He's an MP that we actually heard in our parliamentary debates on broadcasting. Also, there's some BBC staff. Roger Eckersley, that's Peter's brother. He was assistant controller of programmes at the time. And he'd very soon take over Arthur Burroughs' job as director of programmes. Very senior position. Cecil Lewis was there, the deputy director of programmes. Uh, James Agat, the BBC theatre critic and J.C. Stobart, the BBC Director of Education, and also on the jury, that first radio dramatist, Fiddest Twig. Well, well, I discovered in this little archive I've discovered, which is really very, very roughly put together. I mean, it's all out of order, and, and a lot of her writing is illegible, but I did discover in the very first book I opened a lot of ramblings about psychic experiences, lots of references to ghost stories, There are six problems to be solved in this novel competition. A clues will be given to the listeners. So this was an experiment in the paranormal on the air. Arthur Conan Doyle and the notable radio pioneer Sir Oliver Lodge were also both meant to take part, but both bowed out of the jury on this broadcast with a day or two's notice for some reason. Now, the review in the Journal of the American Society for Psychical Research did not think much of this particular lineup. They didn't think it was being taken seriously. The first shock was the realisation that no one with any knowledge of the subject was going to take part in the experiment. And although the announcer told us that the test would be of great interest and value, the whole affair had the appearance of an after-dinner joke and resulted in a ludicrous fiasco. The idea was, back in the 2LO studio, there was a, a host, journalist Sir Alfred Robbins. He was the lone voice there naming six very simple subjects. And he'd ask the 10 million listeners to concentrate on each one in turn. Now, the locked away jury couldn't hear this. They would not know what these six items were. And they had to focus and see if they could puzzle out what the nation was thinking of as they were glaring at their radio sets. The jury was supposed to keep their minds blank, a task which doubtless they found quite easy of accomplishment. So said the American Society for Psychical Research Review. Harsh. So let's look at how it progressed. First up, the letter K. Everyone think of the letter K and stare at your radio sets. Well, it didn't work. James Agat, the theatre critic, said I, always thinking about himself. Lady Tree said Z. Zena Dare said G. The MP uh, chose B. Uh, Dorothy Warren got K eventually on her third go. A correct answer. Eventually, uh, the second item they had to guess was a day of the week. Saturday was the answer. They had a one in seven chance, and yet none of the nine got it right. Ironically, Phyllis Twig wrote for the enormous Saturday storybook the year before, but clearly that word wasn't fresh in her mind. Next, think of a number. 52 years before Johnny Ball had a kid's show of the same name, this time the BBC listenership all thought of the number seven. Unfortunately, none of the jury thought of the number seven. They thought of 49, which is seven sevens. Hmm? Uh, 13, 300, 13 again, 19, 33. It was not going well. Next, think of a playing card. The three of diamonds was what the jury had to try and work out. Education boss J.C. Stobart was the closest with the four of diamonds, but still incorrect. Fifthly, think of a shape. A triangle was concentrated upon by the bored listeners who were wondering why their time was being wasted by this parlour game. Most of the panel chose circles or polygons. Lady Tree said she couldn't keep her mind off a shilling. Typical actress. Dorothy Warren got the only win of the night when she said an isosceles triangle. 
close enough. Finally, Sir Alfred Robbins, back in the studio, asked the nation to think of the game of bridge. Now, this was the only time the panel were given no clue of the topic they had to think of. It could be anything. The jury focused for the final time. Theatre critic James Agert thought that they were thinking of a lamp burning on the cenotaph. It was Armistice Day the very next day. Dorothy Warren thought it was Charlie Chaplin the nation was thinking of. And Lady Tree, again, kept saying a shilling on repeat. Just give that to every answer until it comes up. Reminds me of that comic relief quiz spoof from 1989, where whatever Rowan Atkinson asks Lord Hailsham, he answers, The Belgians! The Bishop of London, who was among the listeners, afterwards announced that he thought the experiments utter nonsense. Yes, the reviews were not kind, and it's difficult to know whether those in the studio took it seriously or thought it was all just highly amusing. Still, I think when we get to this point in the timeline, when we reach 1925 on the podcast, it might be quite fun to recreate this. Now, alas, the newspapers did not report what Phyllis Twig, our star of this episode, guessed for any of those. But we do know, then, of her interest in the world of spiritualism. Many at the time were swept up by it, so soon after the deadly devastation of the Great War. She refers to a BBC script of a broadcast by Ajax, A-J-A-X, at okay. number 10 studio, which was near Waterloo Bridge. There's reference to notes for a talk to writers in May 1902. Ghosts. Right as heroes and heroines in fiction. She says, read Ajax's story of ghosts at the BBC. Oh, no, read. She must have read ah, yes. Ajax's story of ghosts at the BBC studio. So, Phyllis Twig then, children's writer, first radio dramatist, creator of novelty lampshades, and guest on the 1920s equivalent of Derren Brown's Mind Control. But she has a few more surprises up her sleeve yet. And as you found, uh, she has a patent um, for a, a piece of porcelain. Here they are. This is, they're very cleverly designed. The crocker you just showed me, there's t teapots of cats. There's two different cat teapots you have there. And so the head <laughs> comes off, so to speak, doesn't it? The head, it's designed so it can't easily fall off. But if you yes. put it all the way around, then it comes off. You could pour the water in there and then the head, head comes on. And this one says, good gracious. <laughs> but um, what a great thing. And it was made in Bursley by Wood and Son Ceramics, and I just Googled them. So they are, I don't know whether they're still running, but they are in Staffordshire, a pottery firm who made these cats. You did the research in that and discovered that Granny had patented it. Yes, the Pussyfoot. It says here, Class 30 Crockery Earthenware and Porcelain, serial number 241971, Phyllis Margaret Twig. St Andrews, Ventnor, Isle of Wight, England, filed December 24th, Christmas Eve. It's a thing about Christmas, isn't there? It's always linking back to Christmas somehow, uh, of 1926. Well, well, that's so, interesting. I mean, I have a feeling that if they were remarketed now, they'd go very well. Cat lovers would absolutely adore it. Absolutely. Yeah, they'd, they'd be... I, I think I, I shall contact Wood and Son and mm -hmm. see if it's still in existence. <laughs> yeah. They have a new edition of the, cat, of the Pussyfoot Cats. I also discovered she wrote a book, I don't know if you've heard of this one, called Children of the Moon, published by the Medici Society, an anthology of cats. So she was obviously into cats in a big mm. way. So knowing that Phyllis Twig also wrote as Moira Meehan, what else did she write then? Well, cookbooks. That's the main answer. And this brings us to her other broadcasting first. Now, throughout the 1930s, she was regularly pitching to the BBC. She had a 1931 meeting at Savoy Hill with one of our favourites, the talks director Hilda Matheson. Matheson wanted Phyllis Twig slash Moira Meehan on the air as a cookery expert. Twig slash Meehan, uh, she specialised in meals that you could cook on one hop on a primer stove. 
or on a budget perhaps. She wrote books like 1936's The Magic Ring for Needy and Greedy. And that same year, she was back on the Beeb, now from Broadcasting House, giving a talk on the kitchens of the brand new Queen Mary Ocean Liner. She was now an expert in food. And, and then, as you um, found so thrilling, and this is quite wonderful, not only was she the first original playwright for radio drama, um, she was the BBC's first broadcasting cook. Isn't that incredible? In television. Uh, uh, there's not, there aren't many pioneers who have the double first, is there really? But I think Phyllis Twig, a round of applause for her for, for making it on radio and television as both firsts years apart. So yes, that's the other broadcasting first achieved by Phyllis Twig slash Moira Meehan. Almost exactly 14 years after the 35-year-old became the first writer for radio, the 49-year-old was now becoming the first TV chef in the world at a fee of nine guineas. My mother inherited a love of cooking, and was an extremely good cook. Very frugal, good, brought up in the war, but would always be able to make, make up something from the fridge. So she inherited from my grandmother, I think, a love of cooking. But Granny had a big uh, archive of cookery books. And I remember one in particular called 101 Ways to Cook a Potato. That was obviously a good thing in the war, and I suspect there was a certain amount of repetition, but a good name for a book. And even the title of the of the programme that she had on the very early BBC, very literally two weeks in, I think it was, wasn't it? it was Quarter of an Hour Meals, which essentially is exactly what Jamie Oliver has been putting on Channel 4 decades later. Exactly. Moira Meehan will give an example of what can be done with simple equipment in the preparation of good food. December 9th, 1936, BBC television had been on the air from Alexandra Palace for just a few weeks with a viewership of not many. Everything has to start somewhere. In those first few weeks, there actually was another woman, Rosita Dixon, a.k.a. the singing cook, who was on telly before the woman that I'm now calling Twig Mean, due to her many names. But the singing cook was cooking and singing as part of a character profile of different people in town, the jobs they do in her case while singing. So that wasn't a cookery demonstration as such, not a TV chef as we would know it. But Moira Meehan, just a week or so later, she was the first TV presenting chef. She had her own show. Other books followed, including A Little Book of Conceited Secrets and Delights for Ladies, wherein is contained the most incomparable recipes and choices curiosities of many good housewives and learned doctors of physic newly set forth by Moira Meehan. Quite a title. Or what looks like the first ever cookbook for kids. How about this? 1937's Moira Meehan's Adventure Book of Cookery for Boys and Girls Between 9 and 14, or for anyone interested in cooking. She had recipes for every occasion, plus a history of food and choice wisdom, like every girl should receive a cookery thermometer as a christening present. So there you go, the first ever children's cookbook. Now she's the ancestor of Angelica Bell as well. Twig slash Meehan was an advocate to teach home economics early. Tim Crook has a copy of her book. They're very good recipes as well. And uh, although I haven't actually made it yet, um, she has a lovely um, recipe uh, for a Samalina uh, cookie. Okay. Uh, uh, they're fairy cookies, uh, just to kind of connect with her fairy dustman. Uh, kind of theme. All, all about the whole, the franchise goes on, doesn't it? I think Alan Sugar would have a, you know, a role for her. There's another reference I discovered, um, a reference to My Cookery Crusader Plays. That's in her letter to me. This okay. One I meant to open the 21st. Again, that needs a bit of research by me, but she does refer to my cookery crusader plays. She hopes okay. I can read it. <laughs> After her TV cookery debut, she keeps on with the cookbooks. In 1938, she presents the radio drama about diet. And as war approaches, she spots a need. Rationing, food health on a budget. 
She trains army cooks ahead of the Second World War. Professor Tim Crook found that she worked for the Ministry of Food, travelling the land, passing on her culinary wisdom. And Tim has actually found an old Ministry of Information film that Twig Meehan is in. It's on a blog post that Tim has put together, so do see it via the link in our show notes. Now, having recorded this episode and done a best guess of her name's pronunciation, which even her family weren't quite sure how to pronounce, I've just checked this Ministry of Information video that Professor Tim Crook has found. And listen to this. I have in the office with me now a Miss Moira Maine, uh, a, a cookery expert. Moira Maine. Well, now you tell me. So rather than re-record the entire episode or push the magic AI button that corrects my mistake, let's just now accept the error of my ways. Not Moira Mian or Moira Mayen, but Moira Maine. And in that film, we even hear her voice. So you see, Mr. Gardner, if you could let me give a demonstration of quick mints in your shop, it would help very much to create an interest in our food week. So before, during and after the war, Phyllis Twig keeps on pitching to the BBC. She is often rejected. I know the feeling. The BBC has changed since she started, you see. It's bigger now and it's a man's world, alas. She has been a pioneer broadcaster twice, started these ideas going of radio drama and TV cookery. And now she's trying to get on the air again, but not fully succeeding. Phyllis Twig died in 1957, and in her life, as Tim Crook pointed out to me, she became one of the only people to broadcast from the major early BBC bases. Marconi House, or her play was, anyway. She broadcast from Savoy Hill, and she broadcast from Broadcasting House, and from Alexandra Palace. Name me another who has done all of those. How many radio dramatists have also done a novelty lampshade, teapot, paranormal, cookbooks? There's so many different threads to pull on there. Quite alive. How incredibly grateful I am to you and Tim for having brought her to my attention because the awful truth is that I wouldn't have known any of this if it hadn't been for you guys. And I've found in my life, Paul, that it's often when I go to memorial services and funeral services of people I know really well that I discover so much more about them mm. than I knew in their life. If you'd like to hear more from Peter Grimaldi about the Twig family, hear the full interview and indeed watch it on a YouTube video. The link is in the show notes and you'll hear about Phyllis's copy of Darwin's On the Origin of Species, more about Dr Twig and more from her letter to Peter, her grandson. We are very grateful for what he and the family have shared with us. Do check out that video on YouTube for more. And in fact, all of the voices on this episode, we were delighted to be invited to the present-day BBC at Broadcasting House to meet Robert Seater and John Eskom of the BBC History and Heritage Department. There was myself, Professor Tim Crook, Peter Grimaldi, uh, Peter's wife Davinia and his daughter Karina, Dr Andrea Smith, who you'll hear very shortly on Shakespeare. We all gathered, we had tea and story sharing about Phyllis Twig and geekery. We set the record straight and the present-day BBC were delighted to acknowledge the key role that she played that has been underappreciated all of these years. We even gathered around a round table talking about her, almost seance-like. I like to think it's what she may have wanted after her mass telepathy paranormal broadcast of 1925. And there we were in 2023, sharing her story. All arranged incredibly by Professor Tim Crook, who has been so generous in sharing his research with us here. But I'm really delighted and, and so happy because I am the downward slope to oblivion. I've had a lovely life uh, and I'm, I'm sure it's going to carry on, I hope, um, for, <laughs> for some time longer. But, you know, time is getting on and the new generations are discovering, finding, rewriting, resetting. And the very fact that we, uh, we are now, you know, enthusiastically recognising, celebrating women relatively unknown 
Although the seeds are always there. Well, let me wrap up then by just saying your book, Writing Audio Drama, published by Routledge, is out there. So people can can find this. We'll put a link in the show notes as well and on our Twitter and on our Facebook page and things. But thank you for your enthusiasm and uh, sharing of your knowledge. It's amazing that 100 plus years on now, we're, we're still finding new things about old things or amplifying it, amplifying it and broadcasting it. That's what it's always been about. Long may it continue. So we met Phyllis in great detail. Let's meet William Shakespeare, a bit more famous, because to wrap up the episode in our timeline, let's get back into April 1923, where we found ourselves over the last few episodes. We've reached April the 23rd, 1923, and now you know about the first radio drama, which was then followed by the first Shakespeare scenes in February 23. So it's sort of been building. So in February, you get your first few scenes. You get some scenes of, of um, from Julius Caesar and from Othello on air. And then two months later... It's the Bard's birthday. Dr. Andrea Smith of the University of Suffolk takes up the tale. Then in April, marking Shakespeare's birthday, which is usually taken to be 23rd of April, to mark that, there are various things going on in London theatres that day. And there's an organisation called the British Empire Shakespeare Society. This is professional actors, and they did a show at the Haymarket and then came into the BBC that night and did scenes from Shakespeare for pretty much the whole evening. There's some musical interludes, but essentially for most of the evening, you've got scenes from Shakespeare, quite a lot of them. So it looks maybe like the radio broadcast was piggybacked off an existing event. This was under Professor Acton Bond, great name, of the British Empire Shakespeare Society. And let's look at the listing to see exactly what was on the air. Well, after 5.15's Children's Hour, at 6 o'clock, the trial scene of the Merchant of Venice. There's the letter scene from the Merry Wives of Windsor. Henry VIII's fall of Wolsey. Wolsey was played by Acton Bond himself, the driving force behind this Shakespeare BBC bonanza. You've got Julius Caesar's tent scene uh, with Basil Gill and Lynn Harding as Brutus and Cassius. Hamlet's soliloquy by Eva Don. Yes, gender-blind casting. And the Merchant of Venice casket scene with Kathleen Nesbitt and Gerald Lawrence, both key in so many BBC Shakespeare productions in the early years. There's a later talk at 8.15 by Reverend T.P. Stevens of Southwark Cathedral on Shakespeare the Londoner. So there you go, they even got the thought for the day equivalent talking about the bard. More Shakespeare after nine with a bit of much ado about nothing, a few Shakespeare-inspired songs, and regular Shakespeare broadcaster Nigel Playfair gave a speech from As You Like It before dance music closed the night. If you'd like to know, Birmingham that night had a talk on the recording of earthquakes as well as music, while Manchester had a talk on weather forecasting and a cinema orchestra. I mean, it's um, interesting, Shakespeare's birthday stuff, although it's come from the Haymarket, it isn't the Haymarket Company, it's the British Empire Shakespeare Company that are doing it. Is it there's a letter in, I can't remember which publication now, but somebody who'd been to see a very similar thing that they did at the Old Vic, weirdly. The, several of the London theatres did a similar kind of scenes from Shakespeare on Shakespeare's birthday to, to market. And the Old Vic also did one. And this person has written to a paper going, well, this should have been on the wireless. We should be able to hear this on the radio. Clearly not knowing that actually something very similar was. I'm, I'm intrigued to know whether the reason they had the British Empire Shakespeare uh, Society and not the Old Vic, for example, but they didn't have the old Vic company instead, whether that's because British Empire Shakespeare Society is more independent and can do more what it likes because it's not tied to a particular mm. venue and a particular management. I don't know. 
Now, those Shakespeare scenes actually had a live studio audience. We know that S.R. Littlewood wrote about joining at a Strand Emporium, in other words, Marconi House, watching those excerpts. Now, he'd also been at the staged event earlier in the day, and comparing the two, Mr. Littlewood said that he certainly missed the action when he saw the radio version. The Pall Mall Gazette the next day said, I heard, for instance, the wireless version of The Merry Wives, but the gaiety was not quite there. The laughter sounded more uncanny than inspiriting. The voices did not seem sufficiently separated, and Miss Athena Sailor without her nods and becks, is hardly herself. Just a month later, we would have the very first full-length Shakespeare, Twelfth Night, given to us by Kathleen Nesbitt. So, Kathleen Nesbitt, Phyllis Twig, great untold tales of women at the early BBC. My thanks to Professor Tim Crook, Dr Andrea Smith, Peter Grimaldi and the family of Phyllis Twig. And our thanks too to Robert Seater and John Escom for hosting us at the BBC so we could tell those tales of Phyllis Twig, just as we've told to you via this podcast. And the podcast continues next time. We've had drama. How about some comedy? Next episode, Harrods and the Comedians. All will be revealed as our tale continues through April 1923, nearly reaching May of 23. We are taking this very, very slowly. When the BBC moves from Marco house to Savoy Hill. That will be quite an episode. Stay with us. And if you'd like to support us, patreon.com slash Paul Carenza or coffee, that's ko-fi.com slash Paul Carenza. A shilling. You can chip in if you'd like. The Patreon people, of course, get things in return like videos and advanced chapters of my book, Auntie and Uncles, a novelisation of the early BBC, out soon when I finish writing it. The British Broadcasting Century podcast is presented and produced by Paul Carenza. The original music is by Will Farmer. We are nothing to do with the BBC whatsoever, but we delight and evangelise all about the wonderful work of the BBC Written Archive Centre in Caversham, the Heritage and History Department, and all of those preserving and retelling the tales of those early broadcasters. To get in touch with the podcast, do send us an electronic mail, paul at paulcarenza.com. Our assistant, Mrs Trellis, is ready to take your correspondence. We're just here to inform, educate and entertain, so stay subscribed to enjoy the next episode of the British Broadcasting Century.